It's been many months since we've had Ivan pray. It's good. It's good. Romans chapter 15. I'm awfully grateful for technology this morning as well, or we'd have you huddling down here around the front. Romans chapter 15. For those who have not been with us, a little catch-up may be worthwhile. Simply that after we have completed this amazing journey into uh, gospel truth that's been laid out for us in the preceding 14 chapters plus, we finally are trying to establish from the text what was it that Paul was after when he wrote this letter to a church he hadn't founded and while it contained some people he knew, which we will see in chapter 16, nevertheless, it was not the typical type of letter of Paul writing either to a, a person, an, an individual like Timothy, or writing to a church where he had been vitally involved in their founding and converting. So he does that for us. This closing section helps us see what was in his own mind as he was putting this together. And so far we've already looked at two things out of the text. In verse 15 he said that, well picking up in 14, he said, I myself am satisfied about you my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Well, then why write? Well, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. We need to have a constant reminder that we are to live in the gospel and not just be converted by it. It doesn't stop at conversion. We never move beyond, and if I can thank Pat Davlin and company for getting our cross back, we never move past the cross. That's the focal point of everything. And Paul says, I want to bring the cross to bear, the gospel to bear, in everything. And I'm bringing you to, back to, uh, to see that. In 15 through 21, he gives us his second reason, which is to fulfill the gospel ministry. Ministry is not fulfilled in simply getting people reconciled to God in Christ, in conversion. Ministry has to go on and help people grow in the image of Christ and take on his character and come into the fullness of what this salvation is all about. And I think, by way of observation, we can tease out a third thing here today where I'd like to spend our time. And I had intended, actually, to close Romans 15 this morning. We're going to spend one more week. The closing section of 28 through 33 needs some treatment all by itself. But if you're one who's keeping notes, then under Roman numeral 3 this morning, as we work through 22 through 33, we're going to see that Paul has written to them to properly partner with the Romans in ministry. And this becomes an exceedingly practical place for us. He wants to properly partner with the Romans in ministry. This is good because it reminds us that the church, 
whether it's our congregation or any other place where the name of Christ is named, we're given over to this gospel ministry, and we are to be partnering together with one another. This isn't a Lone Ranger type of thing, and it's not a, you know, we for and no more kind of thing. It's easy for churches to become very isolated and, and to imagine themselves. It often happens as churches shrink or get smaller, they immediately say, well, of course, we're the only ones preaching the truth, so everyone's disappearing. And then, then you have to wrestle with the Spurgeons and the MacArthur's and the, the Pipers of the world and say, maybe that logic isn't completely sound. Uh, sometimes when the gospel's preached, many thousands come, like on the day of Pentecost. So that, that isn't always it. Maybe, maybe we've just gotten closed-minded. Maybe we've just gotten the idea that, that we have it and nobody else does. And so Paul doesn't go there. He's, he's going to look to these people to partner with him. We'll unpack that more fully as we go. But in the process of writing this letter, he's done a number of things, two, three main things that we'll cover this morning. But the first was that they got a full grasp of Paul's theology and ministry. Now, as I said, this is extremely important. I don't know how many of you have email or don't, but no doubt you've received some of those little spam messages from time to time. I get probably 30 of them a week from some guy in Nigeria whose wife died of cancer and left me $500 million if I will just send them my bank account number. Now, I saw an article the other day, or a, a news item the other day, that said that the, the Nigerians are wondering how gullible Americans really are. Because people respond to this. They send them their checking account number. Oh, you're going to deposit this on my part because somebody had this? Well, and, and the, the guy who was being interviewed, who is one of these scam artists on the internet who doesn't live in Nigeria, by the way, but lives in Southern California, um, has never even been to Nigeria, but he said it's the Christians who are the most gullible. And that does pose a problem for us. Paul is careful here to say, I want you to partner with me, but I want first to make a full disclosure of my ministry and my theology before I impose that on you. Now, here's an apostle. He had seen the risen Christ eyeball to eyeball. He had been set apart and taught the gospel supernaturally, and yet, in humility and wisdom, subjects all of his teaching to this group of people, and we're going to see how that works out in a few minutes, but he wants to make full disclosure of who he is. He wants to bring this to the forefront. They, they need to understand. And he does it a number of ways. If you work through the book systematically, you're getting his full-orbed theological stand. This is what I believe. This is what I teach. And this is how I apply it. And he brings that to the table. And he does it so that they got a full grasp of his theology and ministry. And in terms of opening his ministry to them, he opens it in a in a wonderful way. Um, it's, it's often true, and uh, Teresa, now that she's been working here uh, some part-time, can tell you, one of the more interesting things that happens on a week-to-week basis is that either by phone call or by email or by visit, we have people presenting themselves and saying, we want to come and 
preach or teach at your church. Um, we know nothing about them. We had one a few weeks ago who called, made several phone contacts, and then finally I spoke with this individual, and they said, well, you know, I have a word from God for this church. I said, you do? That's how interesting. God hasn't mentioned that to me, but but that, that's very interesting. And so I said, well, why don't you, do you know anything about us? No. Do you know anything about the, the peculiar or particular needs of our congregation? No. Can you tell me a little bit about your own background? Well, I'm, I just love Jesus. Oh, that's good. I don't want to denigrate that in any way, shape, or form. But what makes you think I'm just going to let you come in here and turn you loose on people God's put under the charge of the elders of this church? I mean, I don't know what you're going to say or do. And so the individual, I asked if they had a tape so I could hear some of their sermons. Oh, yes, yes, I'll get that right out to you. And it never arrived. But one day, the person did arrive at the front door and said, I've come to explain all this. Come on into my office. Let's have a chat. And they sat down, and I said, can you tell me a little bit about where you're from, what you believe? And it was just little things strung together. There was nothing there. There was no substance. And I said, and what is it that you think God's told you to tell this congregation? Well, I have this great study I do out of the book of whatever. I, thought, I said, well, I thought, I thought that was for this congregation. You had some special. Well, no, it's just the study I've worked up. And I said, well, why don't you send me the notes? I'll be happy to take a look at them. Well, that kind of ended that. We had a little prayer. Just, just a, t- about two weeks ago, and I'm going to show you this, not because I want to, to denigrate the individual. I want to show you this just to build the point um, that, that even someone like the Apostle Paul wasn't just going to show up at the door of the Roman church. He's going to establish some things. He's going to set them out in order so that so that he wants them to think in terms of not being gullible for anybody who comes through the door. There's a wonderful early church document called the Didache. It was written in the first century, moving into the second century. And I'm sure I've mentioned it various times before. But it was rules and regulations for how the church ought to conduct itself. And several of the articles in there have to do with if somebody shows up and they say, I'm a prophet or a teacher. And I want to teach at your church. I've I've showed up on the scene. They said, well, let the person stay one or two days. But if they ask for money, get rid of them. They're a false prophet. Well, we couldn't function that way in America, could we? Or if they call for a banquet in the church, that's great to feed the poor as long as they don't eat. And if they eat, they're a false prophet. Get rid of them. Don't let them stay more than three days. And if they do want to stay longer, then ask them how they intend to make a living. Because they're not going to live off the church. That's fascinating. Well, there's almost like a, a right in our circles. You know, well, I've, I've, I've done my thing. So this gentleman came to the door. I'm sure he's a lovely man. I'm not, please hear me. I'm, not, I'm just doing this by way of example of how this mindset can prevail. And so he came and he gave us this lovely poster and some material and Rebuild the temple program, talking about the body, and he's a bodybuilder, and body, mind, and spirit, and, and he wants me to tell all the church to come and hear him talk. Well, that's good. What do you believe? What Jesus do you serve? What, what, what scripture are you expounding? 
Give me a little something. I mean, it's obvious that he's trim and fit. So he can probably help us with that, but, but he's not established himself. Paul, the apostle, takes time to establish himself. One of the things when you're young and you want to, you maybe sense a call of ministry on your life, and it happens. There may be some young men here, others who feel like you've got a call of ministry on your life. When you're young especially and immature, you just want that one opportunity to get in front of a crowd and do your preaching because you're convinced that if you do, everybody's just going to fall on their faces and know they've heard from God because you've preached. And, and I, I suffered from that when I was young. I went through that. And by God's grace, they didn't let me do that. I'm, I was just trying to recount this week as I was working through this material. In the, the, I turned 54 last week. And in the, um, in the well over 30 years that the Lord's allowed me to minister in one capacity or another, I've only asked to speak someplace once. Only invited myself once. And you know what? It was a disaster. Paul doesn't even do it. Isn't that amazing? So he's saying, be on your guard. Don't be gullible, people. Uh, I'm going to go through and I'm going to, I'm going to make proof, full disclosure of who and what I am so that, so that we're going to be able to partner together. Now, he then spends time talking about his activity in the ministry. Look again at verse 19. So by the power of signs and wonders and by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Remember, he's talked about two things. You not only preach the gospel so that men are converted, but you come back and you strengthen them and instruct them so that they can grow in the image of Christ. And he said, I have a track record where I can show you where that's been done and how it's been done. And there are people who can... can Contribute to the reality that I've, I've fulfilled my ministry that way. So he talks about his own previous activity in the ministry. And then he talks about the breadth of his ministry. From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Now we can see that really in two different ways. First, that has a very definite geographical part to it. I started in Jerusalem, and if you were to look at a map, it would, you would draw an arc from Jerusalem up through Asia to Illyricum, and that basically was, I started at where Christianity began, at the seat of Christianity, and went to the outer edges. Illyricum was what would be present-day northern Albania, Yugoslavia, Bosnia, Herzegovina. That's, that's where he was. So he said, I've, I've, I've made proof of my ministry all the way through these regions. And you can check. You can go back. You can look. But there's something probably even more in his idea there. Uh, turn back to Acts chapter 1 for just a moment. I hope that everyone here supports ministries other than this church. Now, I hope you support this church. We're going to see that's important as well. But I would hope that you're involved in supporting ministries and people outside this church. 
But what I would say is, as Paul is building this for us and demonstrating it to the Romans, I'm going to ask you, be wise in who you support. Know their ministry. Know the proof of it. Know who they are and what they've done. In the early church, if you read Acts especially and 1 Corinthians, when Apollos gets converted and then he's preaching and powerfully convincing the Jews that Jesus, that, um, that, that they need to repent and uh, Aquila and Priscilla take him aside and explain more clearly, Jesus is the one John was preaching about and he's come. And so he starts to preach Christ. But before he is allowed to go to another church and preach, it says that they gave him letters of recommendation. Why? Because you don't want to just send anybody. Paul is, is functioning under his own rubrics here. He's working under this same way. You remember this, this portion of Acts when Jesus is giving his last instructions to the disciples. And in verse 6 of chapter 1, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, Well, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's not an issue for us right now. You need to be concerned with the fact, verse 8, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And there's the sense of this geographical reaching out there. But I would say that there's something else in that that needs to be seen as well. It's not only a geographical concept, but think of the conditions in those places at the time. You're going to be my witnesses first in Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem? It's the seat of Jewish orthodoxy. The first place you're going to be my witnesses is right in the seat of Jewish orthodoxy. Isn't it interesting? In our day, we've almost made a truce with the Jews as though they don't need to be evangelized. We'll just kind of leave them to themselves. We'll do our thing. If a Jew happens in, we'll be happy. But he said, no, you're going to start at the seat of orthodoxy. You begin with religious people, not non-religious people. Isn't that interesting? But not only are you going to be ministering to those, you'll be my witnesses here where where the people are really plugged in, but you'll be my witnesses in Judea. What is Judea? It's the surrounding area. And that surrounding area you've got the more nominal Jew. They weren't the ones who were Pharisees and Sadducees and plugged into the system in Jerusalem. They're still Jewish, but it's a little more nominal, a little less effect. And and so he says, you're going to witness to that crowd too. What's happening here is you find people in various circumstances need ministered to. Paul says, I've made proof of that. I've shown how I do this. And not only there, but they're going to move from Jerusalem and then Judea into Samaria. What was Samaria? Well, that was the capital of the northern kingdom after there had been civil war in Israel. And Samaria would represent those who were now religiously syncretists. They had mixed their original Judaism with some of the other stuff from the surrounding areas. We've got those that we need to reach. Orthodox and nominal Christians by the millions. And, and those who are syncretists, who, who blend things. 
Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, where they, they take Christianity, but they've blended it with other things. They need to be evangelized. They need to be reached. And then to the uttermost parts of the world, to those who are, are unchurched, uh, the pagans entirely. Just this week I finished reading a wonderful book on the story of William and Harriet Pencil as they spent 25 years trying to reach the Aore Indians in the jungles of Bolivia, Stone Age people, totally Stone Age, and how long it took them to, to work into that. We need to, do, we need to do all of those, you see. Outreach is, is comprised of all. And, and that's what Paul says. I've done this. I've done this all the way through. I go to the synagogues, and I minister to those there and try to get them converted. I go to the, to the ones who are, who are the, um, the God-fearers, who, who are then part of the synagogue, and, and, and deal with them. I go to, to those who are kind of outside, like on Mars Hill, with the, the ones who have all sorts of religion but don't know God at all. And, and I go to those who have, have never heard anything. I had an interv- a, a conversation with a church planter. Uh, about well several years ago, with a uh, a denomination and and they had a particular target, and he said my target is that when our church is built we don't want we want a parking lot full of BMWs and Mercedes. I said okay, but what does that do with the rest of the world? And. Paul's demonstrating here that while he is the apostle to the Gentiles, nevertheless he fulfills the whole of that ministry. He doesn't just, he doesn't just do that. And, and it would be important for us to think in those terms too, isn't it, as a church? How we reach out. Those of you that, were, that met Jim Eliff when he was here, Jim's been with us several times. Jim has a real burden for mainline churches that have lost the gospel, where, where there's just no sense of that anymore. And so he has five or six men in his church in Kansas City, and what they do on Sunday morning is they go and join, not join, join in terms of membership, they go to, to churches around the area where they say, oh, boy, here's, here's some great people, and probably 40 years ago the gospel was thriving here, and it's really, it's drawn down. It's just become a, a, a religious organization, trappings. And they say, is there a Bible study I can join? And they join that Bible study. And he says, it isn't long before somebody figures out, these, these guys know something. And they end up teaching the Bible study. And then they start evangelizing in the church. Because the church needs evangelized. Our own church needs evangelized. There's lost people right here this morning. You're religious. You've, you've, you've learned the language and you've learned the hymns and you've learned the stuff and there's never been a change in your heart. Not actually trusting Christ alone for your salvation. You're trusting your, your religious, I'm a good person. And you need to hear the gospel this morning. We, we never stop evangelizing our own and we, and we never neglect a segment that's out there. We have to, to be fully orbed. And he says, well, I've done that. I've, I, I show you how I've, I've made uh, a full uh, work of that, the breadth of my ministry. And, and then he even adds to the, the fact that he's involved now in this ministry of collecting money to take back to the, gen, to the, the church in Jerusalem. It's another aspect of his ministry. Uh, he had been preaching in the churches in, in uh, 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 
Achaia, so the, the Thessalonians and the Philippians and the Corinthians, and he was collecting money from them so that he could take it to Jerusalem to minister to the church there, which was suffering under a terrible time of, of financial loss and difficulty. And he's, he's saying, let me show you the breadth of my ministry. I'm, I'm involved. I'm doing these things. And, and he puts it out there on the plate. It's very, very good. And then lastly, he talks about his focus in ministry. That's what you get in verse 20, isn't it? And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And then quoting Isaiah 52, he says, you know, as it's written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. But at the same time, he said, what I'm doing with you guys isn't, preaching to people who have never heard the gospel, but I'm, I'm helping you grow in Christ and apply the gospel. I'm doing, I'm doing both of my avenues here. And so, and so the focus of my ministry tends to be what, where my heart is and my delight is, is planting churches and, and seeing new converts come in and, and doing that initial work. Nevertheless, I, I, I don't let that become so paramount that I somehow dismiss the other ministry. That's why we had 1 Corinthians read for you. What I came along and planted and Apollos watered, but, but God gave the increase. And now in Rome, he hadn't planted, but what's he doing? He's watering. And so while his focus has been that he wanted to plant churches, and that's why in verse 22 he says, this is the reason why I've been so often hindered from coming to you. That's, that's what I've been busy doing. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to come to you now as I pass by and on my way to Spain. So he's, he's doing the very thing that he calls others to. Under small letter B, for you keeping notes, the other thing that he's done in this, in making proof of his ministry, is that he has addressed their own issues and helped them via the gospel applied. He has shown them that you don't stop at the gospel at salvation, but you bring it to bear on every aspect of, of your life. We saw how he used it to handle the Jewish-Gentile dynamic in the church. And, and that's instructive for us. That's, that's what the equipping of the saints requires of us, is bringing one another over and over and over again to the gospel, to what it means, to what, what's happened in this gospel. And Paul says, you know, I want to come and I want you to help me go to Spain, but I am not going to show up and ask you to help me go to Spain until you first have seen full proof of my ministry. You've even felt the impact of it. I want to demonstrate to you who I am and what I do. And then when I've made my trip to Jerusalem, by God's grace, I'm going to come back and you're going to help me, which means he's looking for financial support to help him get to Spain. But look how carefully, humbly, fully he lays out the case of why he should, he should be supported. Don't just support anybody. Do support plenty. We are to be partnering in the gospel as much as we can. And not only within these four walls, though certainly what, the, what these four walls can do too. But by all means, let's make sure we're partnering wisely. Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. 
and find those places where that can happen. Sky and I support a number of other individuals outside our circles here because we, we, that's necessary to be helping with the ministry in other places and with other people. And I, I hope you're, you're doing the same. In applying that gospel over and over, you get that same feel from him in Ephesians. Don't you turn back to Ephesians chapter 5 for just a moment. This, this is Paul's way all the time. And, and like I said, this just becomes so instructive for you and me to go back and say, the, all of our issues with one another and within the church are always going to come back to an application of the gospel. What am I doing with the reality of what the gospel has meant and done every time? And, and Paul's a master at doing this for us. Look at, look at chapter 5 of Ephesians. He starts off with three master thoughts. Verse 1, therefore, be imitators of God as what? As beloved children. How would you get to be children? Through the gospel. So take up that gospel status and, and live like that so. And in the process then, walk in love as Christ has loved us. And what did that look like? Well, he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So walk in love. And what does that mean? Giving yourself up for others in Christ. Not how can they help me, but how can I help them? I'm going to pour my life into it. That's what walking in love requires. All he's doing is bringing the gospel back home. This is what Christ did in saving us. and, And this should be the natural fruit of the gospel. And then when you walk down to, to verse 8, he expands that. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Walk in love as Christ walked in love. And now walk in light. In other words, with the full reality of, of what Christ has done. It, you see everything through the filter of, of his atoning work. And, and that's how you deal with one another. Wouldn't that be different in the way we talk to each other? If we said, hey, I've got to put this through the filter of Christ before it hits your ears. That's how I salt it with grace and mercy and truth. And to speak the truth, but to speak it in love. Because that's how Christ dealt with us. And not only to walk in love and to walk in light, but over in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, Do everything with this knowledge of reverence for who it is you serve. Who's with you in the room? Isn't he observing every word? Isn't he observing every thought, every attitude? You know, when when you have that argument with that other person, he's present. How How has the gospel impacted the way you deal with other people? When you're there, John MacArthur mentions in terms of walking in the light there, he says, you know, when you think about it, every time you sin, it's as though you're walking right up the steps to the throne and doing whatever it is you're doing right in front of his, his seat. Do we walk that way? See, but that, that's what the gospel's done. It's moved us radically from where we used to be to an entirely new place. If I might say, it's why love and the work of the Holy Spirit transcends the work of the law. 
Well, because love will draw us into things the law never could. The law doesn't have that power. But the gospel does. And when I know I'm loved as much as he loves me, don't I have an overflow to give to others? Shouldn't I? So he's saying, what's he saying? When you're lacking that, feed yourself on the gospel again. Get gospelized again. Evangelize yourself again. Find out who you are again in Christ. Isn't that the way he applies it then in the rest of the, the passage? So, so wives, submit to your own husbands. Is that just the end of the, the thing? No. As in the Lord. It's a spiritual thing. Deal with it from, from that perspective. And, and husbands, love your wives. Verse 25. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. How many husbands are saying, yeah, I'll love you when you finally submit? Well, did he love us after we submitted or before? Hmm. So, you see, the gospel gets applied. It doesn't, it doesn't just save me. It's now got to, it's got to inform every avenue of life. How about children? He doesn't just give blank orders here. This, this isn't just, hey, do it because I said so. Look at 6.1. Children, obey your parents. Why or how? In the Lord. You see, this is right. You have a relationship to your parents, and it's a, it's a spiritual thing. It's not just a command. There's a, there's a reality here, then. Is the gospel being lived out in that, in that context? And how about, how about fathers? Verse 4. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring, the, bring it into the gospel context. How many of us as fathers have said, well, you know, doggone it, I'm the ruler of this house. And so that's why it's going to be that way. How's that gospel to your kids? Discipline has to bring the gospel in. Because, because we're in Christ. We don't just do this stuff off the top of our heads or because there's a, a list of rules. This is about the gospel, about manifesting this new life and this new relationship and the, the glory of who we are in Christ. And in 6.5, same thing with, with slaves. In our context, employers and employees, even in 6.10 with how we deal with the enemy. All of our situations, all of our relationships have to be brought under the umbrella of how the gospel now impacts and colors and informs those. And wherever we leave the gospel out of it, that's where you and I get into trouble with one another. And so Paul says, you know what I'm doing to you, you you Romans? I'm just showing you how you apply the gospel to your situation in the church there and how that then has to take over the way you deal with one another in everything. It's great. You never get past the gospel. You never get past the cross. The cross comes and informs, and informs everything. It's, it's reminding, coming back, and isn't this hard for us? Really getting a grip someday on, uh, some days, on who we are in Christ and what that means then in the situation we're in. Because that's what we lose sight of, isn't it? That, 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 that's, that's what goes out the window on us. And Paul says, this is the fullness of, of my ministry. And he shows them in, in no uncertain terms the practicality of that principle for them and, and how they're to use it in the future. He does a third thing in this establishing of uh, his rationale in partnering. And he exhorts them here in 25 through 29. He exhorts them to prepare to share material blessings for the spiritual blessings they've received. 
Now, it's very true. This is, this is both one of the blessings and the curses of living in our day of technology. You can turn on the TV, turn on the radio, get on your computer, and be blessed from a dozen different ministries today. All good, all worthy. But you can't support them all. You know? And so you've got you've to draw some lines here somewhere. And he says, you know what? I've, I've ministered to you in a wonderful way. But even more, he draws the parallel with those in Jerusalem where the gospel was first preached, sent out Paul and Barnabas, sent out the preachers so that others could hear. And he says, if they gave you, if they made the way for you to receive the spiritual blessing of conversion and growth in Christ, it's only fitting that you would respond by helping them in their physical need right now. That's a good thing. And so he establishes that principle for us. You should support where you're receiving food spiritually and, and do it. And think of what this has got to do to the Jews and Christian, the Jews back in, in Jerusalem, the, the, the Jewish believers. They had lived for centuries with the view that they were the chosen and the clean and the set apart. And now they were in need. And they were going to have to receive, by way of a gift, aid from the very ones they considered unclean and unworthy. And what is the gospel doing in their circumstance? It's calling them to humble themselves. Wow. I don't know about you. That's the, that's the single thing I have the worst time doing, is receiving. I don't like it. It's too humbling. I don't want it. Sky and I have this argument all the time. It's not an argument. It's her bringing the gospel to bear on my pride. Oh, we're, we're so rigid. And the gospel says, no, you become humble. You know, one of the most astounding passages in all of Scripture is found in the gospel of Luke. I won't give it to you now. I'll make you go home and look it up. One of the things I like about Luke is that Luke has two emphases in his, in his gospel. He talks more about the Holy Spirit than all the others, and he talks more about women than all the others. And in his section about women, he makes note of the fact that there was a cadre of women who followed the disciples around and sustained them out of their living. The Son of God was sustained by the gifts of humble women in first century Judea. And don't we stink when it comes to that? (laughs) We don't want to receive like that. Paul says these these beloved brothers in Israel, they're going to learn this wonderful, humbling gospel lesson that, that great, great benefit is to be had in the humility of Christ. And you can't receive the gospel without humility, can you? You've got to acknowledge your sin and your helplessness. You've got to acknowledge the, the utter inability to do a thing and to receive it fully by grace. All what, what, so what you're seeing here is this, this just 
rolling set of examples of how the gospel gets used everywhere all the time throughout his entire ministry. And that's what he's preparing them for then. So when I come to to you and you give me money to go to Spain, you understand what I'm about. You're going to see what this whole thing really works, works up to. Those who give genuine blessing in our growth in Christ ought to be supported. That's, there should be a reciprocation there. That's, that's a biblical principle. I know that there are some who have said, well, no, I don't see that. Well, I see it here <laughs> very, very plainly. It's, it's laid out very clearly. And those who minister the gospel to the unchurched ought to be supported. That's part of what we need to do as a congregation, make sure that that, that happens. But we need to also make sure that that's only to those ministries that we can evaluate properly in two things, evangelism and the growth of, of Christians in Christ. We need to evaluate those. That's, that's what Paul's setting out for us. This is how you do it, church at Rome. I'm going to teach you by my example, and I want to bring you into that. Well, let me try and summarize this so that, so that I can actually finish. My throat doesn't give out entirely. Let me give you three thoughts here in closing. The first is, if you haven't gotten the message, especially when you've come down to these closing chapters, then let me reiterate it once more. We are always striving to be fully gospel Christ-centered. That's, that's the thrust of everything. That the gospel might be preached and that Christ might be made known to the, to the nations, but that we might grow in that. That gospel is, has got to consume our lives and become the, 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 the filter through which everything passes, both to us and from us. Let me... Well, all right, so it's going to be a little longer than I thought. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me just point this out to you, because this is just such a wonderful example of how Paul thinks this way and reiterates this over and over and over and, and maybe, just maybe today, for you, if you're not a Christian here today, what I'm going to ask you to do as, you, as, you go, as I go through these few verses right now, what I want you to do is try and get a sense of this is how the Bible assesses your spiritual condition. Now, the Bible doesn't assess your spiritual condition so that Christians can go na 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 na. The Bible assesses your spiritual condition so that you can hear the gospel and be saved. So that, that's why I want you to know your condition today if you don't know Christ. What that really means. Some would say, well, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I'm not something else. You know, it, it, there's no drastic reality here. Oh, there is. There is. So I want you to see that. If you are a Christian, I want you to get a full grasp of that so that you'll minister sweetly and gently and, and lovingly to those who don't know Christ. But with that, that you'll get a, a, a renewed sense of who you are in Christ. Because we lose that spiritual identity. And when we lose that, then our interactions with each other really turn into horse feathers. It gets ugly. But if we, if we have that fully intact, we deal with one another entirely differently. Um, <clears throat> you know that when you are feeling the most pinched financially, that's when you feel the least generous toward others. It's true spiritually. 
If you're subsisting on bits and pieces of Christ's love, like it's come to you in dribbles, you'll have very little to give to others. It isn't until you start to to drink it in in torrents that you have plenty to give to other people. And that's why Paul's constantly bringing us back to the gospel. Do know what the gospel's done. Get your brain around it. Soak in it until until it fills you up. Look, Look at these then. Those of you who are Christians here today, this is what you used to be. And those of you who aren't Christians today, this is, this is where you are right now. This is how Scripture uh, opens up for you, your current state. Don't run from it. It's, it's healthy. It's good. I've got whatever this is, the you know, leprosy of the lung or whatever right now. And I'm going to have to go to a doctor, and, and he's going to have to really look at it and find out what it really is, you know. It's not just a hamburger stuck in my throat. There's, you know, there's probably a disease in there. That disease isn't condemnation. He wants to diagnose it accurately so he can cure it. Christ opens to you your spiritual estate, not to make you squirm, but that you might come to his saving so what were we? Well, verse two, verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. Man, that's a drastic term, isn't it? And, and that's played out in, in that we once walked, all of us, at one time before we were saved. All of us here. If you're not a Christian this morning, you're among fellow people who are all in the same boat you're in this morning. That's why we're not throwing stones. We're saying, come and know our Savior. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. That's how we walked. We walked by the world's values, the world's opinions, the world's viewpoints. What you probably don't know if you're not saved today is that that is not a benign reality. It's, it's heightened in the next phrase, following the prince of the power of the air. You and I, Christian, before we were saved, were under the direct influence of Satan. And you, dear one, who doesn't know Christ this morning, that's where you are today. You don't even know that. You don't realize that. It's a, it's a terrible place to be. Someone who hates you and has your utter destruction in mind. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, all those who are out of Christ. And among whom we all once lived. How? Well, in the passions of our flesh. It was our own desires that dictated what we did. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature, and we need to remind ourselves of this, Christians, don't we? That we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. No qualitative difference whatsoever. Look down at verse 12 while he gives you some more of insight into this. Remember that at that time, and these are stunning phrases linked together, first separated from Christ, and second alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and thirdly strangers to the covenants of promise. The promises of God meant nothing to you. They they didn't belong to you. And that means you had no hope 
You were hopeless, without God, godless, and at the mercy of the world, in the world, helpless. What a picture. Now, everyone here who is a Christian, think back, there was a time when that was you. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, that's the reality of your circumstance right now. But look at the transition. Now bring the gospel to bear on this. Now this is, this is, what, this is the difference that the gospel makes. Go back up to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy. What's the first thing a Christian is? He's mercied. He's forgiven. Mercied. The sentence and the punishment commuted and removed forever. Oh, what a wonderful thing. Do you feel mercied this morning, Christian? Or do you have little mercy for others because you still think in the back of your mind, somewhere, somewhere down the line, God's going to get even with you? You're mercied. You're mercied. As I was reading this book this week on the death of the bird god of the Aori Indians in Bolivia in the 1930s and 40s, they worshipped a god by the name of Ansonia. Ansonia, the bird god, was vindictive and hard. The little boy whose, whose eyes this story is being told through, Komai, remembers when he was eight years old thinking, is there no forgiveness with Ansonia? Is there, is there no mercy? Because if little children made too much noise and they disturbed the bird god during the season when the world was closed, then they would die of various plagues or diseases or roll over into fires. Or, or if, the parents, if the parents thought, especially little children, if they were born and they weren't pleasing to the eye, were to be buried alive. And this little boy said, is there no mercy? At eight, that was what the missionary could tell them. No, you, God is merciful. You, Christian, you're a mercied one. You've received forgiveness. You who aren't a Christian today, there's mercy to be had. There's forgiveness to be had in Jesus Christ. Mercied. And not only that, because of the great love with which he loved us. Oh, we are loved. And not just loved, but loved with a great love. Loved with a divine love. Child of God, deal with other people because you're mercied and loved. See, bring the gospel to bear. Bring it to bear in all of your relationships. Bring it right back home that, that that's you. That that's, that's what he's done through his saving grace. Even when, when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. Christian, you're, you're alive and not just alive, but alive with Christ. Joined to him, united to him. And, and not only that, but you've been raised up. You've been taken out of the dirt and out of the pit and raised up and set on your feet. Remember, man was made in the image of God with astounding dignity. Divine dignity. And he says, I restore that to you. That's why, that's why salvation is so glorious. To be restored to that place, raised up again. And not only raised up, but then seated with him in heavenly places. Right in his throne with him as he administrates the universe. Christian, 
You're, you're not at the mercy of the world or the devil. You are mercied by God and full of grace and love and dignity and given position in Him. Do you think of yourself that way? See, what if we really started to deal with each other as though we were gospeled people? Like, like that's the truth about us. Makes it pretty easy to slough off the guy who gives you a little bit of a slight, isn't it? Makes it awfully easy to forgive when, when you receive what, when you recognize what you've received, how great this gospel is. If you're not a Christian here today, this is what we want you to know. It's what we want you to have. We, when, when John wrote to the, the church in 1 John, he said, the reason why I'm writing this is so that you might have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Son. We want you to have that fellowship. To be joined to Him this very same way. Mercied and loved and alive in Christ and graced and saved and raised up and seated. And, and in verse 10, His workmanship, His craftsmanship. Do you know that, Christian, that you were crafted by God? Handcrafted with your idiosyncrasies and strangenesses and uniqueness things. Handcrafted by God to be you. You exist, even if you're not a Christian today, you exist today because God wanted you to exist as you. And if you're lost... He wants to bring you to Himself. What a God. Oh, how the Gospel changes our, our place. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, once when we were separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise and, and hopeless and godless and helpless but now, now in, in verse 16, we're reconciled to Him, that He might reconcile us both to God in one body. How? Through the cross. That's why we preach the cross to you, where Christ died, where sins are atoned for. And you trust Him who died on that cross for your salvation. That's, that's what the Gospel does. We, I know I said this a week ago, two weeks ago. It bears repeating. It's necessary. It's been on my own heart and mind so much lately. In terms of forgiveness, especially among Christians, I don't know how we got so stingy with God's love with each other and God's forgiveness. But if the blood of Christ is sufficient to provide forgiveness for you with God, then shouldn't it be sufficient for you with other people? See, that's living in the gospel. I could be generous with forgiveness because I know what it is to be forgiven. And that's a well I can't exhaust. It's to live in that gospel. It's to, to stay there. This is, this is what Paul's after. And not only are we reconciled to him, but in verse 17, we're at peace with him. He came and preached, preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near, both the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and in verse 18, we have access in one spirit to the Father. We can go right up to the throne at any time in Christ and have complete access, have the Father's ear for every need and every concern and every burden 
And so we're no longer strangers and aliens. Instead, we're now citizens. Citizens of a new country. Citizens of a whole new realm. And not only citizens, but family. Members of the household of God. Man, we're rich. He's saying, Christian, live in that gospel. This, this, this is you. This is what you have. This is who you are. Doesn't this give you a great place? You know, those of you that have been looking for work, you know, Dan's rejoicing this week. And has it been a whole week, Dan? All right, a whole week of work. He told me last Sunday, he said, all I asked you to pray for was money, not for a job. Um, but you, when you go to interview for a job, one of the things that they always tell you that, I don't know, now Sky's, you may correct me on this later, babe, I don't know, this is, your, this is your field. But you want to deal with a prospective employer from a position of strength. It's better if you already have a job when you're looking for a job. It's tougher if you don't. But, but you want to deal from a position of strength. Do you realize that he's saying to you as Christians, you always get to deal with everybody from a position of strength, of joy and peace and reconciliation and sweetness and fullness, and, because that's living in the gospel, see? And, and what happens is we forget that we live in the gospel. And so we deal with each other shortly and crisply and poorly and, and out of all sorts of other things. Wow. Now we, we come to this place, we... We live in the gospel. Not only are we reconciled and at peace and citizens and family, but we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. We are grounded on an unshakable, immovable foundation. And it's as though in verse 21 he has summarized all of the above in this one phrase. In him you are also being built together. How? Into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Indwelt by the Spirit of God. Christian, have you forgotten that? <laughs> have you forgotten that you? That's your photograph. No wonder we, we have trouble. No wonder we have trouble. We're always striving to be fully gospel Christ-centered. Brought back to that, that place. And that's all Paul's doing in all of these places is saying, let me bring you back to the gospel. Bring you back to the gospel. This, this is what it's all about. Secondly, our lives are to be given up to this ministry of Christ, to evangelism and to the edification of others. That, that's what he's called us to. What a great place. What a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. When, when, uh, when we were in Texas last, we went shopping. We had gift cards left over from our wedding five years ago. And believe it or not, the department store said they'd still take them. And so I bought a pair of sunglasses I would never own because of the price, but we had these five-year-old gift cards, and I could justify it. And I drove back from Texas. I kept telling Sky. I could sell these sunglasses. I could sell them to anybody. I, I just want to go sell these sunglasses. They are the most, they're, they've changed my life. You know, they're, just, they're just amazing. You know, it's like I can see things I never saw before. I feel better. I'm younger. I, you know, I've, I've lost weight. I love these sunglasses. They're just amazing. When did we lose that with Christ? When we stopped living in the gospel. How good that gospel the good news. Christ has died. There's forgiveness to be had. 
mercy and grace and love and joy and reconciliation and standing and sonship, citizenship and, and the fullness of the indwelling spirit. We're, we're, we're to have lives given up to the ministry of Christ the way Paul's was there. And lastly, we're to be wisely partnering together with others to maximize that spread of the gospel. And so that's what Paul's doing. See, he's, he's come all the way full circle. He's come all the way down to the end of this and said, I'm doing this so I can partner together with you. Why? Because I want this to spread further yet. I want to reach more people. And I want to see more people not only come to the knowledge of Christ, I want to see more people grow in Him. And that's what he's about. What a great call to us, huh? It's a congregation. It's, it's, it's fun to... I hated being in sales for a living. You can't get real excited about the merits of a basting spoon. Uh, trust me, I've tried. There just aren't a lot of features you can sell. Um, but when you get really excited again about what it means to be a child of God, oh, it's easy to tell others, isn't it? Easy to deal with others when, when we're gospelizing ourselves again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we're just met with this wonderful reminder of how glorious this gospel is and, and how we need to live in it. Not just hear it and say, okay, I've got that, but, but, but let it infect and inform and imbue every, every atom of our being to think here. And, and Father, I know for myself... I'm going to be ten minutes out the door. Something's going to happen, and, and I'm not going to respond out of, of a gospel-centered mind. And I'm asking that you will not only work in me to remedy that, but all my brothers and sisters here, that we might begin to live there and love there and grow there together. And I pray for any who may be here who don't know you today as we've talked about how lush and lovely and wonderful and glorious and good all this is. Uh, I pray the way Paul prayed and talked to us about his Jewish brethren, that he wanted to so, so make these truths known that they'd, they'd get jealous and say, I want that too. I want them jealous this morning, Father. He'd say, I, I want that too. I know I'm lost and separated and undone and dead, and condemned, and unclean in my sin. And I need a Redeemer. One who can buy me back. And, re- and make me a new, a new creature in Him. And that one is Christ. And I, I pray vehemently for the work of Your Spirit to enable them today to see that. In all of its fullness. Take this word that's been preached and cause it to birth faith in their hearts. And to trust Christ with their sin and guilt and shame. Because His blood is sufficient. Utterly and completely sufficient. May may that, that happen this very hour. Seal Your word to our hearts, Father. Help us live in the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.